in the um, summer of 1505, a 21-year-old student named Martin Luther was studying law in the city of Erfurt in Germany. He'd already received his master's degree in January of that year, and he spent the previous few months working toward his law degree. During a break, he decided um, to go home and pay a visit to his family, and so he traveled the 60 or so miles to the north um, to the town of Mansfield. On the way back, Luther was caught in a violent thunderstorm. So violent was this, this storm that he thought that God had actually unleashed the very heavens to take his life. So as Luther sought shelter, the story has it that he found a, a, a massive granite rock, maybe it was a tree, but as he clung to it, he cried out, help me, Saint Anne, and I will become a monk. He was, after all, a Roman Catholic, and as was virtually everyone else in Europe at this time. But why did he cry out to St. Anne? Well, for one, this was the only mediator that Luther knew. St. Anne was the patron saint of miners. And Martin Luther's father, Hans Luther, he owned a copper mine and he managed a second mine. And as a miner, there would have been almost certainly a, a shrine in Luther's childhood home to St. Anne. And so when he visited there in Mansfield, it's very likely that he probably had seen St. Anne's shrine, probably even prayed to St. Anne before he set out on his journey back to school. And so it was natural that when he, when he found himself in that intense moment during that storm, that he cried out to St. Anne for help. Who else would he have called to? He actually didn't know Jesus then. Nevertheless, as Roland Bainton, who is probably the premier biographer of Martin Luther, he quipped, God kept his vows and Luther kept his. Stephen Nichols of Ligonier Ministries explains it like this. He says, Luther survived the thunderstorm, made his way back to Erfurt, threw a party for his friends. He gave away his law books, he gave away his law cap, and he entered the monastery there in Erfurt. See, as Protestants, we understand that that's not how prayer works. Um, in fact, you don't, you don't pray to St. Anne. But in Luther's mind at the time, crying out to a dead saint was a way for him to get his prayer to the Father. And in his desperation... He was vowing that if the Lord would just simply save him from this storm, then he would devote his life to the service of the Lord. Have you ever made a vow to God like that? Lots of people in desperation cry out to God saying, If you save me from this danger, I will serve you forever. Or they pledge their firstborn to the church or to the Lord. Or they vow to give money to the support of the ministry. Sometimes these are, sometimes, these are rash prayers offered up in times of desperation. Often the person crying out actually has no interest in, in following through on that prayer. But, but sometimes, as in Luther's case, they're genuine vows of a heart that is truly grateful 
for salvation. Leviticus chapter 27, if you're not already there, um, we're going to be finishing our study of this book this morning. Can you believe that? Uh, For the next couple of weeks, uh, we're going to do a a brief look at the importance of the Reformation. There's a hint there this morning with the story of Luther. After, Chris and I are going to be on vacation for a couple of weeks. After we come back, we're going to finish out the year looking at what the Bible has to say about the nuclear family. Lord willing, in January, we're going to start our study of Paul's letters to the Thessalonians. But Leviticus chapter 27, I'm going to read this whole chapter. And stay with it because it, it's hard, okay? Leviticus chapter 27, verse 1 says this. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, If anyone makes a special vow to the Lord involving the valuation of persons, then the valuation of a male from 20 years old up to 60 years old shall be 50 shekels of silver, according to the shekel of the sanctuary. If the person is a female, the valuation shall be 30 shekels. Uh, If the person is from 5 years old up to 20 years old, the valuation shall be for a male 20 shekels and for a female 10 shekels. If a person is a month old to 5 years old, the valuation shall be for a male 5 shekels of silver and for a female the valuation shall be 3 shekels of silver. And if the person is 60 years old or over, then the valuation of a male shall be 15 shekels and for a female 10 shekels. And if someone is too poor to pay the valuation, then he shall be made to stand before the priest, and the priest shall value him. The priest shall value him according to what the vower can afford. If a vow is an animal um, that may be offered as an offering to the Lord, all of it uh, that he gives to the Lord is holy. He shall not exchange it or make a substitute for it, good or bad, or bad for good. But if he does, in fact, substitute one animal for another, then both of it uh, and the substitute shall be holy. And if it is any unclean animal that may not be offered as an offering to the Lord, then he shall uh, stand the animal before the priest, and the priest shall value it as either good or bad. And the priest shall value as the priest values, so it shall be. But if he wishes to redeem it, he shall add a fifth to the valuation. When a man dedicates his house as a holy gift to the Lord, the priest shall value it as either good or bad, as the priest values it, so it shall stand. And if the donor wishes to redeem his house, uh, he shall add a fifth to the valuation price, and it shall be his. If a man dedicates to the Lord part of the land as his possession, then the valuation shall be in proportion to its seed. A homer of barley seed shall be valued at 50 shekels of silver. If he dedicates his field from the year of Jubilee, the valuation shall stand. But if he dedicates his field after the Jubilee, then the priest shall calculate the price according to the years that remain until the year of Jubilee, and a dedication shall be made from the valuation. And if he who dedicates the field wishes to redeem it, then he shall add a fifth to its valuation price, and it shall remain his." But if he does not wish to redeem the field, and if he has sold the field to another man, it shall not be redeemed anymore. But the field, when it is released from the jubilee, shall be a holy gift to the Lord, like a field that has been devoted. The priest shall be in possession of it. If he dedicates to the Lord a field that he has bought, uh, which is not part of his possession, then the priest shall calculate the amount of the valuation for it up to the year of jubilee, and the man shall give the valuation on that day as a holy gift to the Lord. 
Uh, in the year of Jubilee, the field shall return to him from whom it was bought and from whom the land belongs as a possession. Every valuation shall be according to the shekel of the sanctuary. Twenty geras shall make a shekel. But a firstborn of animals, which, is a first, uh, which as a firstborn belongs to the Lord, no man may dedicate, whether ox or sheep, it is the Lord's. If it is an unclean animal, then he shall buy it back at the valuation and add a fifth to it. Or, if it is not redeemed, it shall be sold at the valuation. But no devoted thing that a man devotes to the Lord, of anything that he has, whether man or beast, or of his inherited field, shall be sold or redeemed. Every devoted thing is most holy to the Lord. No one devoted who is to be devoted for destruction from mankind shall be ransomed. He shall surely be put to death. Every tithe of the land, whether of the seed of the land or of the fruit of the trees, is the Lord's. It is holy to the Lord. If a man wishes to redeem some of his tithe, he shall add a fifth to it. And every tithe of herds and flocks, every tenth of animal of all that pass under the herdman's staff shall be holy to the Lord. One shall not differentiate between good or bad, neither shall he make a substitute for it. And if he does substitute for it, then it... Uh, then both it and the substitute shall be holy. It shall not be redeemed. These are the commandments that the Lord commanded Moses for the people of Israel on Mount Sinai. Okay, let's stop and pray here. Lord, we acknowledge that some of your word is hard to understand and it's hard to um, understand how to apply it to us. And so I pray that you'd give us wisdom today, Lord. Help us to understand uh, what all of this means for us. Pray that you would give us wisdom, that you would feed us from your word and encourage our hearts today that your name might be praised. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. The book of Leviticus, the entire book, is about belonging to Yahweh, belonging to the Lord. Remember, he had said, and I've quoted this a bunch of times in our study uh, through this book, he had said back in chapter 19 of Exodus, now therefore... He said to the people of Israel, If you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for the earth is mine. You shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And the people responded with, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Leviticus answers the question of what the Lord requires of his people. Um, It defines very clearly and very specifically exactly the laws of God that the people had agreed to obey. Now, if we break it down in in general terms, chapters 1 through 25 lays out the law that the people were to obey. Chapter 26 that we looked at over the last couple of weeks spells out the consequences either of obedience or disobedience, and it lays out a, a series of blessings or curses. And then here in chapter 27, we come, we come across what scholars often think of as, as kind of like an appendix to the book. Now, now sometimes we, we think of an appendix um, as an addition that the author didn't think of when he was writing the book, right? Uh, new editions of books sometimes include um, appendices of information that, that came to light after an earlier edition was published. But that can't be the case here. Right? That can't be the case here because the Lord inspired this. 
I think that putting this chapter at the end as, as sort of like an appendix, it serves a couple of purposes. First, it, it keeps the book from ending um, with a negative mood, right? With divine threats of curses for disobedience. So think of it like this. Um, the people of Israel are, are being equipped and sent off to conquer the promised land. Right? The Lord is giving them his law and sending them into the promised land. That's the idea behind all of this. So, so think of it like this. When you send your children off to the first day of school, for example, and, and some of you have to just imagine this because you've never actually left the house on the first day of school, but you understand. When you send your children off on the first day of school, generally speaking, uh, unless you have a compelling reason, generally speaking, Parents don't typically send them off with threats of punishment for disobedience. Some of you have a compelling reason to do that, but generally speaking, you don't. So generally speaking, we, say, we don't say something like this. Have a great first day of kindergarten today, honey, and listen to your teacher, or I will give you the biggest whooping of your life when you get home. <laughs> now, I'm sure that this is... Um, really not the most compelling reason that Leviticus doesn't end at the end of chapter 26 because it's negative, because there are other books of the Bible that clearly end negatively. For example, the last verse of the book of Judges is in those days there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. First Kings ends with this paragraph. This is the last paragraph of the book of First Kings. Ahaziah, the son of Ahab, began to reign over Israel in Samaria in the 17th year of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, and he reigned two years over Israel. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and walked in the way of his father and in the way of his mother and in the way of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and who made Israel to sin. He served Baal and worshipped him and provoked the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger in every way that his father had done. The end. Of course, we know that's not the end. Um, but maybe that's the point of those books ending that way, sort of with bad news and, and a negative light on the people of Israel. But Leviticus is actually ending on a more positive note. See, when the, when the Lord gives the people his law, Israel is generally on the upswing. They have been redeemed from their slavery in Egypt and the Lord is preparing them for the conquest of the promised land. Whereas at the time of the judges and of kings, those, those other two books I just read the endings of, they, they were times of turmoil and turbulence and, and frankly, they were times of cursing due to Israel's disobedience. I think another reason the book ends this way is that this chapter serves to, to bring out that ongoing theme of the book of Leviticus of redemption. Redemption is one of the big underlying themes throughout Leviticus and, and really the entire Bible, really. In fact, the specific Hebrew word used for redemption or redeem in one form or another, it's used only in Leviticus, only in this chapter and in chapter 25. But in those two chapters, it's used 29 times. Redemption. And this, this specific concept of redemption in Leviticus here, 
is the idea of buying back a debt from a lien holder, that the debt has been redeemed. We no longer owe someone. Remember, chapter 25 was about that year of Jubilee. It's all about redeeming debts. It's all about being set free from those chains of debt. In chapter 26, with that series of blessings and curses, while that same word for redemption isn't used, that theme is all through the chapter, especially as you consider the, the warnings and the promises. As, as Israel looks back, for example, at verse 13, they look back, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And they also look forward at the end of the chapter in verses 44 and 45. It says, yet for all of that, when they, were, uh, when they are in the land of their enemies, I will not spurn them. Neither will I abhor them so as to destroy them utterly and break my covenant with them. For I am the Lord their God. But I will for their sake remember the covenant with their forefathers whom I brought out of the land of Egypt in the sight of the nations that I might be their God. I am the Lord. It looks back at where they have come from and forward to where they are going. So this final chapter Chapter 27, it serves to remind the Israelites of the, of the high cost of redemption as long as, or as well as the, the gravity of what it means to belong to Yahweh. I believe this is one of the problems with modern Christianity. We actually don't believe that belonging to Yahweh is costly, that it costs something to belong to God. But we can't treat our salvation as an empty vow. We can't treat our salvation as an empty vow. This chapter is really summarized in Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 23, which says this, You shall be careful to do what has passed your lips, for you have voluntarily vowed to the Lord your God what you have promised with your mouth. Be careful to do what you have told God you will do. So this chapter is about keeping your word, but specifically about keeping your word with regard to that which is set apart as holy to the Lord. Keeping your word as, uh, um, with regards to that which is set apart to the Lord. And that begins with people. And so people as holy to the Lord. We already read this, but just, just look again at verses 1 through 8. Kind of let your eyes kind of run down those verses. Leviticus 27, 1 through 8. People as holy to the Lord. The first thing that I want to acknowledge as you look at these things, as you kind of just skim over that again, is the difficulty of understanding this. Our presuppositions jump to the forefront of our minds when we read passages like this. We get defensive. Valuation of people the key to understanding this, though, um, and these valuations here, is in that term, one of the keys at least, is in that term special vow in verse 2. Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, if anyone makes a special vow to the Lord involving the valuation of persons, a special vow. The Hebrew word there that, that the, at least my version, the ESV, translates as special, it can also be translated as hard or difficult. Either probably, honestly, would be a better word to use there than special. 
a difficult vow. So, so we already saw a while ago, back in chapter 5, that vows made to the Lord must be honored. That was part of the law. And then Moses will say a little bit later in Numbers chapter 30, verses 1 and 2, he says, this is what the Lord has commanded. If a man vows a vow to the Lord or swears an oath to bind himself by a pledge, he shall not break his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. And if, if you didn't already know, mankind is in no position to go back on his word to God, right? Mankind is in no position to go back on his word to God. In fact, the preacher of Ecclesiastes says this plainly. Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verses 4 and 5 says this. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay in paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. So what is happening here in the law? What is happening in these first eight verses? Well, the idea is that the Israelites can use a vow to dedicate themselves or even someone under their authority, like a, like a child, to the service of the Lord. Usually... Uh, this service to the Lord is used in the tabernacle or, or later in the temple. So let me give you an example. That's exactly what is happening uh, with Hannah in 1 Samuel chapter 1, verse 11. So she prays this. She says, so 1 Samuel 1, 11, Hannah vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall touch his head. Now this was a difficult vow. It was a vow made in a time of difficulty. In this case, Hannah had not been able to have children. But the, the Lord would open her womb and give her a son, Samuel. And Hannah would follow through on that vow... And she would dedicate Samuel to the service of the temple. But what would happen? What would happen to the person making such a vow if they changed their mind for any reason? Could be good or bad. What would happen if a person changed their mind after they've made a vow? It could be that the vow was made in a time of great desperation, like the example of Martin Luther. And then when the person became more measured and more rational, they realized that vow was a mistake. I should never have said that to the Lord. I should not have done that. And yet the Lord delivered me, and so I, I made a vow to God. Now what do I do? It could have been that the need no longer existed. Um, so uh, consider, for example, during the construction of the, the temple, uh, a father might dedicate his newborn son to, to work in the construction of the temple, and yet the temple is completed before the son is old enough to work there. It, maybe a father died suddenly, and, and the mother needed the dedicated son to come back home and, and help to lead and provide for the family. You get the drift. There could be many reasons why vows might not be fulfilled. And so in this passage, what we see is God graciously and compassionately providing for the redemption of those vows. 
or those persons who had been dedicated in such a way. He is, is setting them free. I'm sure you can see the value breakdown in these verses here, right? Um, you see that it's based on sex and age. Um, we might be tempted to simply dismiss this on the basis of, of putting a price on human value is immoral and wrong, right? Are, are men more intrinsically valuable than women? No. They're all made in the image of God. For a whole host of reasons, some of you are worth more at your jobs than others. Right? You, you, you hope you're worth more than the guy who doesn't show up every day. Right? That's the idea. You know that and you appreciate those things. But you might say, look at this and say, but men aren't worth more than women. Well, okay, we agree on that. But what if the job is helping with the disposal of butchered sacrificial animals? In fact, according to this, a woman between the ages of 20 and 60 is worth twice as much as a man over the age of 60. This isn't about intrinsic value. This isn't simply saying that, that anyone, anyone under 60 is inherently more valuable than anyone over 60. That would fly in the face of a whole bunch of other passages of Scripture. Proverbs, for example, such as, Gray hair is a crown of glory. It is gained in a righteous life. Listen to your father who gave you life and do not despise your mother when she is old. Wisdom is with the aged and understanding in length of days. Or even as we saw back in chapter 19, the law itself addresses this. Leviticus 19.32 says, You shall stand up before the gray head and honor the face of an old man, and you shall fear your God, I am the Lord. On and on. We see this all through the scriptures. These prices here in these verses are related to their service. They are related to the person's ability to perform often strenuous manual labor, particularly around the tabernacle. I have no doubt that that strenuous manual labor frequently involved shoveling and scooping into wheel things, we'll just say things, into wheelbarrows to bring outside the camp, right? It was hard work pushing a wheelbarrow full of dung up a hill and out into the, outside the camp. There were people um, dedicated to do this work. Now, Exodus chapter 21, verse 32, um, sets the value of a male slave at 30 shekels. Um, and that was about compensation for accidental death. That's what that was about. But here, in this passage, the value for the redemption of an adult male under 60 is at 50 shekels. Now, one of the things that we see throughout this chapter is that the Lord seems to be, in, He seems to intentionally set the price high on everything, really. Probably, it seems likely, to discourage those kind of rash, impulsive vows. It doesn't specifically say that, but that makes sense because it's all through this chapter. But don't miss verse 8. This is important. 
verse 8, and if someone is too poor to pay the valuation, then he shall uh, be made to stand before the priest, and the priest shall value him, and the priest shall value him according to what the vower can afford. This is really simple. The priest will assess what the person can afford. See, the Lord, in His grace, makes a way for all people, rich or poor, to participate fully in worshiping Him. In this case, through the fulfillment of their vows. Now, put this together with an event that happened in the temple as Jesus observed in Luke chapter 21. We read this. Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box. And he saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins. And he said, Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them, for they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, put in all that she had to live on. So I'll say it again, the point of this. The Lord, in His grace, makes a way for all people, rich and poor, to participate fully in worshiping Him. The Lord makes a way. There is no rich or poor in God's economy. But what if an Israelite made a vow of giving over property to the Lord, something that belonged to Him? This becomes the next section, is property as holy to the Lord. And this section of the law divides into three subsections. And it begins with animals in verses 9 to 13. Let me read these, this paragraph again. If the vow is an animal that may be offered as an offering to the Lord, all of it that he gives to the Lord is holy. He shall not exchange it or make a substitute for it, good or bad, or bad for good. And if he does, in fact, substitute one animal for another, then both of it and the substitute shall be holy. And if it is any unclean animal that may not be offered as an offering to the Lord, then he shall stand the animal before the priest, and the priest shall value it as either good or bad, and the priest, as the priest values it, so shall it be. But if he wishes to redeem it, he shall add a fifth to the valuation. Now, this type of vow here, vowing an animal to the Lord, this is undoubtedly what Jephthah had in mind in Judges chapter 11. This is the vow that he thought he was making. Judges 11 verses 30 to 32 says this, And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, If you will give the Ammonites into my hand, then whatever comes out from the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the Ammonites shall be the Lord's, and I will offer it up for a burnt offering. So Jephthah crossed over to the Ammonites and fought against them, and the Lord gave them into his hand. Now, if you know that story, um, you might remember that it was not an animal that came out first. It was his daughter. Um, we're not going to look at that passage now, but if you read it later, and I would encourage you to, Judges 11, you're going to see that it's actually kind of unclear what happens to his daughter. She may have been sacrificed, or she may have been given to the service of the temple, sort of like a nun, never marrying, never having children. There's some of that hint in there. Yet what is clear, what is clear from Judges chapter 11 is that the Lord right here has provided a way out from under what was clearly a rash and stupid vow. 
Jephthah should not have made that vow, but God in his kindness had already given him a law that he could buy his way out of that, that he could honor his word by giving some money, by, 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 by redeeming his own daughter. But in those days, there was no king in the land and everybody did what was right in his own eyes and clearly he didn't know what the law said. Here's what we see in this, in this um, verse or these verses. If the animal is ceremonially clean, um, then they could not exchange it or substitute it out. In other words, they could not swap a, a, a bull for a goat of lesser value or, or a good bull for a, a bad one of lesser value, one that was blemished. This is what the people were doing in the prophet Malachi's day. Listen to what God thinks of that, Malachi 1.14. Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. If we zoom out a little bit, I think this is actually a big temptation for us. Um, to promise him everything when we are desperate, when we feel like we need him, when we want him to rescue us from whatever, and yet we forget him and we even become thankless in times of plenty, right? We make all of these promises to God. If you will just give me that job, I will fill in the blank. And then when we get it, we don't follow through. Or we try to swap out and bargain with God. This law forbids that kind of ingratitude. It actually states that both of the animals become holy. If you try and swap it out, you, you lose both of them. Both animals become set apart to the Lord. And it serves to prevent those Israelites from keeping for themselves either animal. Um, from holding back, prevents them from holding back the best for themselves. Yet, it goes on, if the animal is ceremonially unclean, it could not be offered to the Lord, but it still could be used in the tabernacle for the, for the use of the priests. So, so think of a donkey, for example. Okay? Uh, obviously, donkeys were not allowed to be sacrificed. They weren't part of the sacrificial system. But a donkey could be very useful around the tabernacle, could be very useful uh, in the priest's daily life, maybe for his commute. <laughs> or for work around his own house. Yet if the owner wanted to redeem it, wanted to buy it back, the priest could set the value. And again, in an effort to discourage rash vows, verse 13 says, but if he wishes to redeem it, he shall add a fifth to the valuation. The Lord is trying to get his people to stop making those rash vows, but to really think through these things. The second subsection here is about houses in verses 14 and 15. When a man dedicates his house as a holy gift to the Lord, the priest shall value it as either good or bad. As the priest values it, so it shall stand. And if the donor wishes to redeem his house, he shall add a fifth to the valuation price, and it shall be his. Again, keep in mind, we're talking about special or difficult vows. Sometimes uh, people will vow to give their houses to the Lord if he will rescue me. Proverbs 20, verse 25, uh, kind of gives us wisdom as we think about making these vows. It is a snare to say rashly, it is holy, and then to reflect only after making vows. 
Lord, if you will deliver me, I will give my whole house to you. I'll give all of my income. I'll give everything I have to you. Oh, I shouldn't have said that because he rescued me and now I have to give it all to him. Now, here in verse 14, it mentions a good value or a bad value. And that's referring to the appraisal. Um, Is the house worth something or should that house just be torn down? Every once in a while, and we haven't been through this here, but I've been through it in another church. Um, Every once in a while, churches have to deal with this where a, a family, say, will inherit a property and donate it to the church. But the house is in such bad shape that it actually costs the church more money to deal with it, to tear it down, and, and right? It costs more than the property is worth. Sometimes that house actually has more emotional value than actual value. Um, this law is protecting the priests and the tabernacle by giving the priest the authority to set the price, the value of it. Now, this is clearly about the, the literal structure of a house and a donation of a house. It's a protection for the, um, for the family and for the tabernacle or the, the priestly system, the sanctuary of God. But consider what the house represents. Joshua chapter 24, verses 14 and 15 says, Now therefore fear the Lord and serve Him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your fathers served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. That's a vow to the Lord, is it not? That is a vow, and I realize Leviticus 27 is talking about literal structures, but that's a vow that Joshua is making for his household to serve the Lord. Are are we dedicating our households to the service of the Lord? Matthew Henry, in his commentary, he says this on this point. He says, blessed be God. There is a way of sanctifying our houses to be holy unto the Lord without either selling them or buying them. And if we in our houses serve the Lord, if religion rule in them and we put iniquity far away from them and have a church in our house, holiness to the Lord written upon it, it is His and He will dwell with us in it. And that is our goal. And then this final section here of this passage, uh, final subsection I guess, is regarding land in verses 16 to 25. Now, this is a pretty um, kind of legally complicated uh, section that I've already read, but just look at verse 16. It says this, If a man dedicates to the Lord part of the land that is his possession, and the valuation shall be in proportion to its seed, a homer barley seed shall be valued at 50 shekels of silver. Now, notice that phrase, his possession. Evidently, in in some circumstances, the owner would retain control of the land, even if the the value of the produce was dedicated to the service of the temple or the tabernacle. Now, consider again the people of Israel during this time. One of the reasons the Levites were not given an allotment of land in Canaan was because of the nature of their ministry within the sacrificial system, within the people of Israel. 
if they had a whole section of the land that they were to, that they were to um, take dominion of, it would keep them incredibly busy. And, they, and, and their ministry doesn't give them time to farm and develop the land and other related commerce, right? They are to be the priests for the people, the rest of the people. And as I said, this passage is pretty complicated, but it, but it seems that verses 16 to 21 is about the, the allotted lands, land owned by each of the tribes, whereas verses 22 to 24 seem to be about, I guess we could say, leased land, that is, land that would, that would revert back to the ancestral owner at the year of Jubilee. This is kind of hard to understand, but you have to think back to what we looked at in chapter 25 there. Suffice it to say this, dedicating a portion of the fruit of the land to the Lord was a way to support the work of the ministry while also keeping the land within the the tribal allotments, the tribes of Israel. They, They get to keep their land, but they still can support the work of the ministry by donating the fruit of the land. So, We've seen that the Lord provides for the people to fulfill their vows through redemption. We've seen this all through this chapter. We've seen it in the people themselves and in their property, whether that's animals, houses, or land. But what about the things that already belong to the Lord? The things that already belong to the Lord. This really is all of verses 26 to 34. But just look at verses 28 and 29. But no devoted thing that a man devotes to the Lord of anything that he has, whether man or beast or of his inherited field, shall be sold or redeemed. Every devoted thing is most holy to the Lord. No one devoted who is to be devoted for destruction from mankind shall be ransomed. He shall surely be put to death. First part of this is that you cannot give to God what is already his. You cannot give to God what is already His. As a matter of fact, nothing that has already been devoted to the Lord, and we're not talking about vows of dedication, but rather something that the Lord has already claimed, has already said is His, like the firstborn. Exodus chapter 13, verses 1 and 2, the Lord said to Moses, Consecrate to me all the firstborn. Whatever is the first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both man and of beast, is mine. You cannot give to the Lord what is already His. Nothing devoted to the Lord can be, can be sold or redeemed. Once it belongs to God, it can, either be, it can either be sanctified or it must be utterly destroyed. Here's how to understand this. In Numbers chapter 21, verses 2 and 3 says this. And Israel vowed a vow to the Lord and said, so keep in mind verse 29 that we just read and listen to Numbers 21. If you will indeed give this people into my, la- my hand, then I will devote their cities to destruction. And the Lord heeded the voice of Israel and gave over the Canaanites, and they devoted them and their cities to destruction. So the name of the place was called Hormah. So those cities were devoted to destruction. So they cannot keep some of them as spoils of war, like, say, Achan did, the battle of Ai in Joshua chapter 7 when he saw among the spoil a beautiful cloak from Shinar, 200 shekels of silver and a gold bar weighing 50 shekels, I coveted them and took them, we read. 
he saw some cash laying around and a really nice coat, and he wanted it for himself. But that had already, all of it, had been already utterly devoted to destruction. Anything that has been devoted to God as a burnt offering, it says, so to speak, cannot be redeemed. The point is, devoted things belong to God. Okay. This is a hard chapter to understand. And it's a hard chapter to end a book on. (laughs) But let me give you five areas of life, as we can make kind of a, a hard transition here into application, five areas of life that Christians of all people should not break their vows to God. Okay? The first is this. Baptismal vows. In baptism, we are promising by God's grace to live by faith. To break those vows ultimately is to stop living by faith. It is, to use modern lingo, to deconstruct, which actually is the word to apostatize, to abandon the one who saved you. Now, we all know that we will fail to fully live by faith regularly. I confess that on our behalf every Lord's Day when we come together. We have failed to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We have failed to love our neighbor as ourselves. but there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so we confess our sins and he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We keep coming back to the assembly of the saints regularly to confess those sins, to be reminded that there is no condemnation because he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So we are not to abandon And I'm using the phrase, our baptismal vows, but we are not to abandon the faith. That's what we mean. We are not to abandon the faith because he will not leave us or forsake us. Secondly, marriage vows. In a time where the world, um, a time where the world calls all kinds of evil marriage, in a time where marriages are disposable, and are so frequently based on current feelings, as Christians, we must take our marriage vows seriously. To have and to hold from this day forward, for better, for worse, for richer, for poor, in sickness and in health, in any and all of life's circumstance, till death do us part. That's the vow that everybody says that I marry. We need to hold our marriage vows in high esteem. Even in our minds. Third, vows of worship. Vows of worship. This one's a little bit more difficult, but here's what this means. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. 
Because Christ has saved us, we therefore, in fact, Romans chapter 12, Romans chapters 1 through 11 are all of the indicatives. It's all of what God has done. That's all, Romans chapter 1 all the way through chapter 11 is all what God has done for us. And chapter 12 begins with what we call the imperatives. You must do this then. And it says specifically, I appeal to you therefore. Because of 11 chapters of what God has done for us, I appeal to you, Paul says, by the mercy of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind. And because of what Christ has done for us, we are vowing to be transformed and be like Christ vows of worship. Fourth one. Vows about supporting the work of the ministry. This is right here in verses 30 to 33. But the Apostle Paul addresses this really in in 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9. But he says this in chapter 9. The point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. You are, RBC is an incredibly um, generous church. Incredibly generous. But we are committed to supporting the work of the ministry. And so I would encourage you to keep on doing that as you are. And then finally, the fifth vow that as Christians we should not break are vows to preach the gospel and defend the faith. There are many passages that I could go to here like 1 Corinthians chapter 9 where Paul says, For necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. We could go to Jude verse 3 which says, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. We could go to Jesus' great commission in Matthew 28. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. But let let me close our study of the book of Leviticus with this other passage. One that I... I hope, will tie together all of this and really all of the book. It's Galatians chapter 3, verses 10 to 14, which says this. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be anyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it's evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. Now, there are a lot of other vows that we as Christians should keep. We should love one another. 
We should vow to love one another. There's, we could probably come up with a list of hundreds of things that we should vow and keep. But the point of all of this is that the law will not save you because we're breaking the law. We break the law every week. That's what we pray and ask for forgiveness for. But Christ, Christ kept the law perfectly. He kept his word perfectly. And we know that the promise is this. All who call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ shall be saved. We should be saved from the curse of the law. We should be saved from our sin. We should be saved from bearing the wrath of God, from drinking of the cup of the wrath of God. We should be saved. All who call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ shall be saved. Pray with me. Father, it is our prayer that we would be a people who live by faith. That we can take the law and we can see how we are supposed to live, how we are supposed to be conformed to the image of Christ, how that is supposed to look. We can see in the law that, uh, that you require holiness and so we can understand what it means to be holy as Christ is holy. We can see in the law that you have provided a, a, an atonement for our sins in Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, that all who call upon the name of Jesus Christ shall be saved. Father, we rejoice in those things and so we use the law to conform us to the image, to trust in Christ and to, and to conform to his image. Father, I pray that we would be a people who live by faith, faith and a trust in the Savior who has kept it for us, who has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transformed us into the, into the land of the living, has called us sons, given us an inheritance and who holds out for us the hope of the promised land of an eternity with our Father, with Jesus Christ, where we can see him with our eyes, when we will eat and drink and rejoice with him. And so, Lord, until then, we come to the table. We come with hearts of thankfulness to the Lord's Supper, Father, we are thankful that you have sent your son to be the Lamb of God to take away our sin. We pray that your name would be praised. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.